This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Music is an incredible thing. It can move you, it can inspire you, and it's something that can never be taken away. For Keith Bonsall, music has been a massive part of his life. Right from an early age growing up on Canvey, Keith has always been involved, and in the 60s, he was part of the group The Essex Five. Through the band, he got to support and work with legends such as Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, but there came a point when performing cover songs wasn't enough. He had to start writing his own material. Songwriting allowed him to explore all manner of new, inventive ways to create music, and he also paid a young man £20 to arrange pieces for him. That man was a certain Andrew Lloyd Webber. As the 70s came around, Keith formed a new rock band called Zyle. The music was unique, and the stage shows were crazy at times, and while they proved to be a hit much later down the line, it wasn't financially viable to keep it going. Instead, Keith moved into event management, professional DJing in some of Essex's best-known clubs, as well as filmmaking. However, following popular demand, Keith recently went back to creating albums, and in 2018, the first Zyle album since the 70s will be released to the wider world. Brought to you by Essex Live, this is Humans of Chelmsford, and this is Keith Ponsor's story. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and telling us a little bit about your life and the music and all of that, that sort of stuff. Uh, now, you were brought up on Candy, I believe. So, growing up, what did music kind of mean to you and represent to you? Well, music was a, a kind of a community get-together with local uh, musicians, um, one of which was Wilco Johnson, um, who was in, a, in an early band, and he had a drummer called... Um, known as the big figure, which is Johnny Martin, who ended up as my drummer with a, a group of guys called the Essex Five. Um, we played around all the usual village halls and different places, and, and then we started playing all over the country at American air bases, um, mm -hmm. uh, concert halls, theatres, and the like. Yeah. So, yeah. 
I was going to come on to Essex Five in a moment. Um, in terms of sort of influences on your life, where does a lot of that come from? Is it artists that you admire, or is it family, friends? Well, it was just listening to other other people's music, really. I mean, I, I did study music at school. There's any qualifications that I've got. I did get to a grade eight in music, which is not a lot to sing and dance about. Like I've always played uh, the, the piano, and um, and I sort of fiddled around with most instruments. Um, I could probably play most instruments that are going, except brass instruments, but stringed instruments are all very similar and keyboard instruments. Um, and I've continued playing them to this day. So Exactly. And you mentioned the Essex Five. Yeah. How how do you look back on those years as part of that band? Are they like really... Was that kind of you starting off your musical journey as such? Yeah, it was in the early days, really, where amplification was reasonably uh, low. So it's formed in the 60s? Formed in the 60s. um, Where I remember buying an amplifier called an AC, a Vox AC30. Um, And I thought it had six inputs that everyone else could use it as well. So the whole band used to plug into into this same amplifier and even the vocals. So technology was in its early stages. Um, I know we, we supported Eric Clapton and Cream at a couple of or two or three gigs, um, and I think the PA was 200 watts. Now they're—I forget how many megawatts they are—but uh, in those days, that was 200 watts, and that was good enough for Eric Clapton. <laughs> um, good enough for us. So exactly. And you mentioned the likes of Eric Clapton and Cream, and I think Jimi Hendrix is involved as well in terms of acts that you've supported or been involved with. Yeah. What's it like, you know, being around people like these who are proper rock legends now? Well, um, some of these rock legends are now with us and uh, not with us anymore. Um, but I can remember we played uh, in, a, in, a, in a club in London. I mean, boys from Canvey didn't really, didn't really know what happened in London. And we, we played in um, a club called the Cromwellian. And one of the guitarists said to me, isn't that Eric? No, it's not Eric Clapton. No, it's George Harrison sitting there, isn't it? Crack, isn't it? And, it? and it was Jimi Hendrix sitting there. Um, and there they were in the audience listening to five lads from Canva who weren't very funky or very rock and roll. But it was that, we look back at it and you think, crikey, did that really happen? But it did. Exactly. It was a proper pinch-yourself moment that you kind of still carry to this day as well. Yeah, I mean, from those days, we knew we had to make some recordings and I started to venture into a place called Denmark Street in London where most of the recording studios were. Um, and I got, I got talking to a guy in a pub and we started recording in a place called Regent Sound now Regent Sound was where the Rolling Stones recorded a lot of their early hits um, Van Morrison in fact it's almost who's who of who recorded was in this little four track studio um, called Regent Sound which is now um, I think it's a, a guitar shop it's still there but it was primitive, it was only four track, so people really had to sort of just do the backing tracks first, overdub the the vocals, and just mix it onto quarter inch, and that was that. But they were the early places of recording, which I was lucky enough to put my um, toes into, and that's when I started thinking that I've got to tr- try and write original material, you can't just keep doing cover versions, which is what we were doing. So I then started writing. Yeah. 
how did a lot of those opportunities come around? Was it purely through kind of networking through the studios and things like that that you got to meet all these incredible people? Well, yeah, I mean, in those days, in fact, it would be quite um, a revelation to know that there's a lot of records that are going around now which people um, uh, uh, sort of consider to be greats weren't these people playing the music weren't actually there they were all session it was a world of session musicians and session musicians used to go around they used to go play the drums on that one somebody used to put the vocals overdub guitars brass um and i used to be in the pub there and so i said can you come and put some piano parts on and i've probably been on quite a few hit records that i don't even know to this day and i got paid a pint for um but that was all part of mingling and getting in with the with the group the group of musicians i never became a session musician but it was a lot of doors that were opening uh, by doing it exactly it's something you had to do to you know further your music career and yeah i mean mm-hmm. you've got to remember that as as young lads from Canberra, we didn't look very rock and roll i mean um we sort of <laughs> tried to be rock and roll i mean i I, I, we didn't even really drink that much. I mean, we just thought being in London, being around people, um, going into the TPA club and, and all the relevant places was a way to get on and meet other producers, meet other writers. Um, and it opened a lot of doors for me. Absolutely. Now, you come to the songwriting stage, and I think you opened up a studio in South End, if that's right. And that's that correct. kind of coincided with your next band, the Cardboard Orchestra. Yeah. So is that when you started properly experimenting with your own songwriting style and things like that? Well, I, I met a guy called Mark Wesley, who was a Radio Luxembourg DJ. He also uh, was a songwriter. And we used to meet most nights and just try and come up with original songs. Um, and we used to be using old reel-to-reel tape recorders and multi-tracking. So... You, if I can explain what that is, you, you put down like a keyboard part, play that back to yourself, you play a guitar part over it, then you play a bass part over it, then you put all the bits and pieces, you build up the tracks. Instead of having individual musicians, you build up the tracks to make an end product. Um, his mum got fed up with us at home, I think, so we, we got a studio behind, it used to be Chris Stevens' music store in Vic House Corner in South End. Um, so we put the Brunel tape recorder in there, we put an old piano in there, I think we rented or something. And we did the same things there and tried to earn money by recording other artists who would pay for our studio time. And another person that you worked with to arrange songs for you was a certain Andrew Lloyd Webber. Well, yes, with Mark, uh, somebody heard these tracks in London and we got... um, a contract with CBS um, as the Cardboard Orchestra and we thought it would be quite nice instead of multi-tracking all these instruments that somebody gave us some money and we hired the real musicians so I had these, these big dreams of big orchestras and um, bark trumpets and, and all these things so we needed someone to arrange it and this guy was always hanging around this uh, this guy was a he looked a bit effeminate, really, to be quite honest. And his name was Andrew Lloyd Webber. So Andrew Lloyd Webber used to do the arrangements for us for the grand total of £20. Pounds. Um, and it just shows how ridiculous it is. I never even gave him a credit 
when the records came out. So, <laughs> but I, I don't know if you'd cross the road and speak to me now, but I used to go up to his, um, his flat in Kensington and discuss the arrangements. And Andrew Lloyd Webber was a master. He was obviously classically trained, his whole family were. So he could extract uh, a violin part, a cello part, um, a brass part. He's very clever of mingling other people's arrangements and ideas, and that's what he did. Um, which is why when I look, listen to a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals, um, it's spot the tune. Um, if you want to try and do that, get one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's um, compositions and see if you can spot the tune. come on to the rock band Zyle and I think I was was that 70s it started yeah how did that compare to your other groups in terms of musicality and probably the fun that you had as well well obviously I was writing pop songs with Mark Wesley from Luxembourg and I didn't really get a lot from that I wanted a little bit more rock and rolly so I started um, going back to Denmark Street um and I met someone in a in a pub, of course. It's where all good relationships start. Yeah, and I used to go in there and try and get familiar with recording techniques with the multi-track machines, which became 8-track and 16-track. Um, and I used to notice there was always instruments hanging around the studio after a day's work in the studio. And I met this guy called Bill Farley, who had been um, engineering for the Rolling Stones... Uh, Mott Hoople, um, Van Morrison, a whole string of people. And uh, he just said to me, look, there's no one in the studio. Here's the key. Don't tell anybody I've given you the keys. Go in and see what you can do. So I went into the studio with a drummer called Peter Brewer and we were playing around with things and we came up with Zaya, which was more heavy rock, um, lots of guitar riffs, smoke on the water type things where we could put amplifiers in other rooms and wind them up and, and experiment with sounds um, and then we suddenly we suddenly came up with a concept which a guy heard called Larry Page Larry Page who had the trogs and we put a whole concept together then we put the whole thing on the road and we, and we made it um, a bit wild, if you know what I mean. It's, <laughs> that no one else was doing that. Alice Cooper was doing something similar, but we had stage props and, we, and it was theatricals. And it was kind of leaning on black magic and voodoo and it was all fun stuff, but caught people's imagination. Exactly. I suppose that must have been a real sort of thrilling thing for you to do, that you can experiment in this way and get the response back that you were at the time. Yeah, I mean, we, we, launched, we launched the album, uh, the Zara album, on the Panther. Um, and the launch was at Ronnie Scott, so I can actually say I've actually played at Ronnie Scott's um, with all these theatricals and things. Um, yeah, that was, Zara was good, and it's, it was, it was a, great, a great thing. We played all the universities. Um, 
didn't earn any money, but we had some great fun. Exactly. Do you have any favourite memories or, or anecdotes from that time that you still keep to this day? Well, that's quite a tough one. I know that we, we was, had a reputation of always sacrificing someone on stage and we used to run into the audience um, and grab someone. And we had a Hammond organ, a C3 Hammond organ, and we used to get someone and with lights and everything and strobes. We pretend to sacrifice somebody, which was very theatrical. Then we had a, um, a white sheet, which we used to put on, on, uh, on the stage, with a light shining through it, so it became a shadow show. So then we used to make out it was being sacrificed with shadows, and and it used to look quite dramatic. And then whilst that was going on, I used to go around the back of the stage, run round the outside of the theatre, and I used to run through the audience dressed as some voodoo, frightening the life out of people <laughs> with total chaos. Um, but it was different. No one else had done that, and I thought that's a way we can get noticed. Um, and it worked for quite a while, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, certainly eye-catching, even if you can't see it, even if you're just hearing about it. Yeah. Certainly an eye-catching vision. It was something no one had ever done before. I mean, all the props we made at home, I mean, I got very upset when I saw Alice Cooper who had Hollywood-style props and, and all that sort of... And there we were with lumps of cardboard and polystyrene and all these masks which I'd made from any old thing yeah but it, that would it was interesting we had some real great fun you know chewing around so. exactly so looking back to the 60s and 70s how does the music scene compare then to how it does now well obviously the music then you either did it or you didn't now everything is um, contrived with computers logic pro everyone's multi-tracking i mean Everybody's making records. I mean, if you look at even Justin Bieber and all these people, they're all put together by one person. There's no bands. They don't exist. They're just faces. Um, of course, I think it goes down to, if you go to a, a major rock concert now, um, the engineers used to have quite a good living at selling you the actual tape of the artist singing real before um, they've taken away the click track and and you know what I mean they're not really singing and no one really sings live even Madonna they're all singing to their own voices um, no one takes any chances even all the major rock festivals everybody's playing to tracks there's less organic from your yeah mm -hmm. and therefore how can people learn to play instruments it's computers now I mean the, if you're familiar with Logic Pro you can almost do anything you don't even have to sing in tune and even to play an instrument, even if you're playing it in the wrong key, it will correct it. The technology is sensational. Um, in, in fact, in fact, my new Zara album, I used all the technology, but I also sampled some of the original sounds, the bass sounds and the drum sounds that I'd used in the 70s. So I've used the technology from then entwined with technology from now. And, of course, quality is a lot better as well.
after Zio, I think you stepped away from sort of playing in bands and things like that, and what followed was DJing and event managing as well. What was the reason behind you kind of stepping back? Was it purely financial, or was there were there other influences as well? Well, just before I, I go to that, if I can just say, ju- just at the end of that period when I didn't have a lot of money, and I really didn't, I was uh, playing everywhere, do a gig and come home and owe the band a fiver, you know, because he needed new tyres on the van. I got invited to make an album of 300 quid, which I needed then. So I said, I'll tell you what, if you can come up with an album uh, in a day, because I've got to deliver it tomorrow, I'll give you 300 quid. And I did another album called Monument, which is as bizarre as you'll ever know. It's got piano lids being slammed, toilets being flushed, noises. It goes from waltzes to quick steps to rock. And, it, and it's now quite a collectible item. So that possibly got me 300 quid, but then I wasn't making any money out of live music at all. Was, it, was that the album where people kind of went, what on earth is going on? Absolutely, and to this day, people now try and ask me, try and analyse different things, and it was it was just get the thing done, written as it was played. I mean, I've, I, I played a, a piano piece, which is all the concertos inside out, upside down, bizarre tempo changes, as bizarre as I could possibly do, and it, everyone thinks it's wonderful. <laughs> the King's Magic Suit, I think that one is. So from that, I suddenly... I don't know why I got led into doing DJ and I didn't own too many records really. Then I um, I got invited to be a DJ at a place called uh, Juvago's in, in South End. Um, and we played the A-sides, the B-sides, the A-sides requested again and bluffed, bluffed the way through doing it. But by chatting, I suddenly had my own identity. Um, mm-hmm. And it never stopped from there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I ended up going to the Lyceum in London and the Empire Leicester Square, and I was touring all over the place, but I made a good living. Alison Moy, I was in bank with the Screaming Abdabs or the Vickers mm-hmm. and they were appearing at that wonderful venue the Shrimpers okay. um, and I, I think I was uh, they were doing talent nights there and she came along and it was then that I started making videos so I'd actually videoed all these early bands which unfortunately so I erased them so. So I would have had early stuff about us and why. And that's, that's a lesson, I suppose, for a lot of people is never erase stuff that you think could potentially have so much value in the future. Yes, it is. I mean, it comes to another era of my life. I actually worked for David Croft. And David Croft, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. wrote Dad's Army, I've mm-hmm. been so hardy high. I did a lot for David Croft. And a lot of the early Dad's Army shows, very, very much like Doctor Who, someone erased them. They didn't have any value for them and they threw them into skips or literally wiped them to use the tape again and now everyone's trying to get copies of those so um, yeah don't wipe anything keep it (laughs) exactly but going back to the DJing I mean you sort of you say you bluffed it at first but was it something you really kind of got ingrained into afterwards and really enjoyed going around all the nightclubs in in Essex and in London because I've got Raquel's time 
Empire and Leicester Square. Is that something you really sort of relished each time that you could come around and do it? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's an, it's it's all rolls on from being like in a band. You're entertaining. I just rolled that over into DJing. I mean, DJing became God was a DJ because everyone could put a record on, but anyone could do it the way I was doing it. I never even used to own headphones. You're going to laugh at this one. Never cued a record up. Um, I used to just put a record on and used to be able to judge a crowd very well, which is why at the, at the Empire with 3,000 people a night, to actually do it because of my musical background and, and rhythms and, and that, I could quite easily put records together and I knew the sequence of records. And, of course, you're as good as your last show. If you are no good, you're out of work. And I don't think I ever looked for work, ever. I was taken from one place to another. Um, and did very successful nights. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you've you've quickly touched upon the new album from yeah. Zyle. Is that kind of where your focus is now? So moving away a little bit from DJing and going back to what it was now. Yeah, as you as you probably know, I, I'm now very active in making films. Um, in fact, I've just made that film Essex Disco Fever, which is all my archive nightclub footage, which no one else has ever done and it doesn't exist, which just documents in a, in a historic way all what went on in the nightclub industry, all the great music, all the great people. Um, but leading that on to my filmmaking, which I do lots of eventing and all sorts of things, um, filming chefs, I'm now filming James Martin, I think I did Fred last week from First Dates and which is great, you know, and I've had so many requests for people who want another Zaya album. I've now put my uh, music head on and I've come up with another album, which is very much like the other, but it's te- it's a lot more technology. Exactly. It's like you were saying before, you can kind of bring in the, both, the be- best of both worlds, where you've yeah. got you know, the organic stuff from 70s but you've now got a whole load of technology at your hand, at your disposal now, that you never had before. So is that a whole new environment to play in? I think I'm very privileged that going right the way back to my school days, and I said that with my music background, all that comes to force when, if, with rhythms and things like that, you never really forget how to play. So although anybody can buy Logic Pro, and there are drummers on there you can call up, and there are brass sections and rhythms to be a musician to actually play live creatively with it I think um, there's not many people could actually do that I mean you've got Mike Oldfield with Tubular Bells and even with um, Pete Townsend with The Who, it's Pete Townsend that did all The Who things and there's always someone that's got what can I say, the ability still to play music in association with technology and this is that's why I've called this, it's a strange title, I've called it Zire to the Movie. Of course, there is no movie at the moment. Someone's talked about it, it could be a stage show or a Cirque Soleil situation because it's, it's, a, it's a cross-culture of people who got voodoo and all these sorts of things. And um, it's, I've called it a movie because I want people to make their own movie in their minds when they hear it because it's it's atmospheric it's Pink Floyd 
It's um, it's got sounds which are quite crazy. It's got African drumming on there. It's got intergalactic space sounds on it. But it's got the old rock and roll, I don't know, using the word rock and roll, rock. Rock sounds, deep purplish. A lot of piano work, a lot of classical piano work done in a strange way. And it, I don't think it's been anything like it. it is, it's on its own. Exactly. And we'll obviously look forward to that once it does actually come out. It's coming out early April this year, so... Um, it's going to be. It's not for everyone. You wouldn't put your children to bed with this. <laughs> Great advice for everyone out there. Also, one one interesting thing about you as well is you're also a parish councillor for Little Baddo Parish Council. And how how does that come about for you? Because I imagine you know, hearing your story, you're not the typical perception of a parish councillor. No, you're dead right. Um, I don't really know how it happened. I got. I got invited to go on because the um, the other members of the council are not the youngest tools in the box. So ideas and things I think they could do, although I'm not still the youngest tool in the box, new ideas and fresh ideas and creative ideas are good for the community. Um, there are a lot of young people in, in Little Baddo who don't get involved in anything. So the idea is to try and get people involved, try and get them to take care of the place. Um, it's difficult to say, really. I, I, if people to take more notice and not be frightened of original ideas. And uh, having heard my track record, I've always had original ideas, um, and I, I try and in, uh, interact with others to put my ideas forward. Exactly. And I suppose we'll, we'll finish off with a musical note again. And we happen to be recording this the day after the Brit Awards as well. So is there a reason or something you can kind of put your finger on as to why music in this country is so important, so profound, and also so popular around the globe? Well, I think the um, the history of, of music in, in the UK, firstly, you had... Um, the old bar, uh, dance dance band era, um, and then you had people that were coming from America. People only heard music from America, Elvis Presley, and then you had Cliff Richard, who basically was Elvis Presley in, in karaoke form, and you had Tommy Steele, and all these people were just emulating the American sounds, and especially the Black American sound, which I've always loved anyway, and the soul and everything. But it's developed onto to people who are doing their own things and we now have some such amazing artists who are original and I think yeah you, you have a development now where artists are commodities they are, are things like what can I say some of these boy bands and girl bands even to the Spice Girls Spice Girls formed by someone who put an ad in the stage magazine he'd already, already done the tracks Somebody like me who who put all the tracks together, they were the image, they were the, the faces to market these things. The music business is a business. It's a tool that can sell things and concerts going around with um, stage shows, selling out stadium. Um, I think its development is brilliant. I mean, the, 
the the sad thing is with venues where you can't play live music anymore it's they're all gone you can't do it anymore um, but it's great that people can play just an acoustic guitar you can go down Chelmsford High Street today and you can he hear someone singing great um, you can see all sorts of people with talent with nowhere to play and if someone doesn't grab hold of this talent and do something development may be voices that are created via computers and robots that there isn't anybody and they will even do a 3D character that will be the the, the artist. There will be no artist. Um, but people are developing music in schools and jazz is really good. Young people are playing great stuff. I've heard some great young jazz musicians. Um, and I think the, the future's bright. It looks good. Absolutely, and it's a perfect way to round this off. And I just want to say thank you again, Keith, for coming on, telling us all about your story, and I uh, wish you all the very best for the new album yeah. out in April. Desire 2, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Check tele2.nl voor de beste deal voor jou. Ik